Well, while that's happening, what something to think about. What do you do when you don't have all the facts? When you have part of a story, <laughs> what do you do? Huh? When you have part of a story, but there remains things that you don't know. What do you do when the, when the picture is incomplete? Maybe this problem or, or this circumstance calls to mind for you your favourite uh, whodunit movie. You know, the, the mystery where the story begins clear, the characters interact in predictable ways, and then suddenly there's a twist, and everything you thought about the story is suddenly thrown into confusion. Or maybe the game of Cluedo. Was it Mrs. White, the maid in the pantry with the candlestick? Or was it Colonel Mustard in the billiard room with the revolver? The lack of facts leaves you drawing assumptions, doesn't it? Sometimes wildly, but making you guess and suspect until the story is finally made clear. The big reveal moment happens and you find yourself saying, ah. Well, we kind of find Elijah in this sort of predicament, in this sort of situation this morning. With all the amazing things that God has done that we spoke about earlier, demonstrating God's power and God's authority, everything was, was coming together for Elijah. The picture was clear, at least he thought. It was time for the people of God to return. My control. There we go. So let's look again at the, at the end of Elijah's prayer on Mount Carmel um, in 1 Kings 18, verse 37. He's prayed, he said, Lord, bring down fire, essentially. He says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. That was Elijah's expectation. This is what was going to happen from this, these events. The king and queen would repent, God's people and God's kingdom would be uh, God's king people would be restored to God's kingdom. The proper worship of Yahweh once more would be initiated. And so Elijah has run back to Jezreel, and as he's relaxing into his comfy chair, he gets a message from Jezebel the queen: "You, sir, are a dead man." Well, that wasn't quite the uh, expectation that Elijah had. That was not the predictable end Elijah was expecting. This was the unexpected twist in the story, as it were. When things went, but, when, but when things went pear-shaped for him, when the story began to become confusing, when Elijah thought what was going to happen didn't happen, he lost his nerve for a moment at least. He got out of there fearful and despondent, running right across the country of Israel and Judah and into the desert, lying down under a broom tree, exhausted and dejected. 1 Kings 19 verse 4 records, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah thought he had it all worked out. Elijah was sure he knew what God had in mind. 
But when it turned out that he did not have the full picture, instead of inquiring of the Lord in that moment, instead of seeking the word of God and what to do next as he had done, he jumped to conclusions and he assumed that God's plans and purposes had failed. Somehow they'd failed in that moment and he determined that he himself was a failure. I'm no better than my father's. I haven't turned the people back to God as they hadn't before, as, as my fathers hadn't before me. But God's plans hadn't failed, had they? We have a bit of 2020 vision that Elijah didn't get. But Elijah had taken a wild stab in the dark at the whodunit mystery, and he'd got it spectacularly wrong. And it, but he would soon see that God had a bigger plan, a better plan than Elijah had imagined. In the meantime, Elijah is looking for answers. And now, after a 40-day night trek through the desert, sustained, as we saw, by God's own provision, we find him settling down into a cave on Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the mountain where God had shown up many years earlier, as we read from Exodus, when he appeared to the then leader of God's people, Moses. So as we zoom back into the life of Elijah and the story today, it seems that Elijah is walking around with his eyes wide shut. And that's my first point of this, of, of, of this uh, sermon today. Living with our eyes wide shut. It's a, it's a bit like when um, you're watching a magician working with sleight of hand. Sleight of hand works on the assumption that the human brain, the human mind, doesn't notice things unless it's actively focused on it. The effect is that things can be happening right in front of you, but, but your brain only focuses on what you consider to be important, filtering out everything else. Um, the industry, I suppose, note, uh, notes this as the spotlight of attention or inattentional blindness. Either you're focused on one or you're blind to the others. You can describe it either way. Basically, the mind has blinkers, much like a racehorse. They want the racehorse to look forward and just to race forward, so it has blinkers. Our mind has these sort of blinkers that cause us to, to do this. And it happens to people even if they think they can multitask, like I often pretend I can do. <laughs> And, but it, but it basically, it's a, it's a way of helping our brain not be overwhelmed and overloaded with, with information. But the, um, and while I've been a circus performer, I've never been very good at magic, um, but the magician exploits this phenomenon. That's basically what the ma magician does. Taking advantage of the human brain's directing attention to something, unimportant, really, so that the viewer does not notice the sleight of hand movements that it makes, and I'm not going to produce a pen, even though I thought that might have been fun. <laughs> Otherwise, in plain sight, that you didn't see because you were looking at this thing. And so in a similar way, our minds and thoughts, affected by the corrupting influence of sin as they are, if not engaged and focused appropriately, can be blinded from seeing the full picture of our circumstances. Now, Elijah, he's not in a magic show, but he is suffering from the effects of inattentional blindness to a degree. Turn with me to 1 Kings 19, verse 9 um, in your Bibles as we pick up the story. 
Verse 9 reads this. There, that's at Mount Horeb, he, Elijah, came to a cave and lodged in it, had a sleep. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? It, it would seem that Elijah was not where he was supposed to be. Elijah was the prophet of God to God's people, and he was supposed to be with the people of God. Of course, in the providence of God, God would use this waywardness of Elijah to his purposes. But in that moment, the question is asked of him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And in verse 10, we see Elijah's response. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now, of course, on the one hand, what Elijah is saying here is very largely true. There is no doubting Elijah's zeal for God. He has heard and seen God's word work powerfully through miraculous signs and acts that hadn't been seen in Israel since the time of Moses, as we read earlier. He was, up until now, courageous, unwavering, and he had brought about God's purposes with lethal effect. It was right of Elijah as the prophet of God, responsible for constantly pointing God's people back to God's covenant. It was right for him to go to God with a lament that God's people were not living for God. That was the whole purpose of Elijah's existence, was to point people back to the covenant. The indictment on the, the people that they had killed the prophets of the Lord was likely accurate too. If not directly, then at least through their unwillingness to stand up to the evils of the foreign queen that ruled them as she went about an, ex, an extermination program of, of the prophets of the Lord. And it was correct that Elijah's life was now under threat. But do you notice Elijah doesn't really directly answer God's question, does he? What are you doing here, Elijah? is effectively answered with, it seems. What am I doing here? What am I doing here? Let me tell you what I'm doing here. I have been living up to my side of the bargain. I'm your prophet, God, doing your work. And well, quite frankly, it seems you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're not showing up. I've done everything you've asked of me, but their hearts have not changed. They have not turned back to you. And now, now they want me dead. God, what on earth is going on here? A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Elijah and how he had expected that this big Baal masquerade ending event had, um, including the breaking of the drought, his view was that he thought it would result in wholesale repentance of God's people there and then. And of course, in the moment, it did have some effect. You'll remember the people falling down and declaring, uh, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I mean, you can imagine the chanting or something, and they're up there, the Lord, he is God. After the fire has just burnt the altar. So the people have responded in a kind. 
And so what a high Elijah must have been on as he, as he came down from the mountain and the, the storm, the, he ran to Jezreel ahead of a chariot, the storm was coming in. But as soon as he discovered that that great sign had not changed the heart of God's people, oh sorry, had not changed the heart of Jezebel or Ahab, and Elijah would have full well known that as goes the heart of the king, so goes the heart of the nation, that flash in the pan response of the people was likely not to last. Is that my mic or is that something over there? And it was on this that Elijah focused, it seems, on this, at this point. His attention was on what didn't happen, blinding himself to the past realities of what God had done. Not, not only in his own life, but in the long history of Israel, over centuries to that time. Faithfully, as he'd promised to Moses, faithfully continuing with his people as they continually rebelled against him. But with that narrow field of view, he drew some pretty big assumptions, it seems, that God's purposes were not being met. Because they were not being met in the way that he expected them to. And isn't it true that in our sin, we can do the same thing? We can be so sure we have all the facts, yet be blind to God's purposes of what's going on in our, in our life. And like Elijah, that's not for lack of zeal either. We can be really, really trying to focus on God and living for God and His purposes, but in our zealousness still be completely blinded to other aspects of God and what God is doing in our moment with us or with others. Even to the point sometimes of disobedience to God, ironically, in our zeal. As Christians, we've had our eyes opened to who God is who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do. We understand that we're a rebellious people with no way to save ourselves. We recognize that we should be the subject of God's judgment as a result, but that we're saved by the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. We've heard God's word. We know who he is. Our eyes are wide open to such things. But sometimes we allow our eyes to be blinkered by our circumstances. Sometimes we even deliberately close our eyes to our circumstances, close our eyes to who God is because of our circumstances. If we go back to our Cluedo example, it's kind of like when you make an early assumption of one of the clues and then you base your entire strategy off that one clue, so sure that it's correct, I've definitely, definitely got that one, only to find out at the end of the game that you'd closed off any chance to discover what was actually the clue and you weren't able to reach the conclusion. You closed yourself off. You made an assumption. You, you locked yourself in and you didn't look beyond that. I think a helpful diagnosis tool for us to identify whether we're walking with our eyes wide shut as Christians is, am I becoming frustrated with this situation? Am I allowing what I assume to be the facts or the appropriate outcome of my circumstances to niggle and irritate when things turn out to be different? Do I get moody and hard to live with? Do I get snappy? Do I get sullen? Do I get stressed? How do I react when the circumstances aren't what I expected? Now, it may not be a direct calling out to God to say, you know, God, you're not showing up here as Elijah did. You may not 
actually even notice you're doing it. But it's no less a demonstration that we don't trust God and that, God's ways, that we don't trust that God's ways are best. In that moment, we are looking to ourselves as Elijah did. A different example? What if a brother or sister has wronged me and I say, look, it's no big deal. We don't need to talk about it. I don't, I, I don't want to make a big thing of it. All right? I just, let's just leave it. But I continue to ruminate on the situation. I continue to think about it. I, I, I second-guess the person's motives or their actions. I allow negative thoughts to, to come about this person and to remain. Well, in such a case, I'm letting assumptions that I've drawn rule in place of what God has told me I ought to do in such a situation. I mean, we see clearly in Matthew 5, 23 to 24, and 18, verse 15, that God calls us to always take the initiative to go and talk to my brother or sister when they or I have wronged them. If you read one, you've got to read the other because they both point you in the same direction. If you or if they have wronged you, you've wronged them or they've wronged you, you go. <laughs> We don't. Why? Well, we look at ourselves and we say, well, look, I think I've got it all sorted out. I don't really need to go and do that. But we don't. If we leave our eyes shut for too long, a further diagnostic might be, um, as James puts it in chapter 4 of his letter, we, we might see that we're causing quarrels and fights because our passions are at war within us? Are we desiring outcomes or situations with the wrong motives? Even ostensibly or, or seemingly focusing my attention on God, yet not allowing God to use the circumstances in ways that I might not expect? Am I frustrated and am I dwelling on my frustration? As we saw at the start of chapter 19, such an approach can cause even Elijah to doubt God and his purposes leading Elijah to fear, allowing even Elijah to despair. And like Elijah, our, as Christians, our eyes have been opened to who God is and what he has promised. But we can sometimes look to God's future promises and demand them for ourselves now. It may be health and prosperity. It may be removal of pain and sadness. And as a result of our blinkered gaze, it's lowered to lesser horizons than the amazing promises that God gives. We can shut ourselves out to recognizing God's patient timing and how he chooses to work. Elijah was suffering from inattentional blindness. He was focusing on what God was not doing, objecting to the fact that God was not doing what he expected him to do. And even when God asks him a direct question, why are you here, Elijah? From his narrow field of view, he chooses not to directly answer, but to make his complaint. But in his gracious providence, God does not leave Elijah there in his bewildered objections, does he? Thankfully. He sets in motion an event that had happened very rarely in the history of God's people. The veil, effectively shielding humanity from the fullness of who God is, the eternal God, who was and is and forever will be, as we've sung this morning, that veil was to be lifted once more. And so it leads to my second heading for this morning. The veil is lifted, or the secret is revealed. 
So, the beginning of verse 11, read with me. And he, God, Yahweh, he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. I think these interactions, it's only such a brief story, but these interactions between God and, and his man, his, his, Elijah, his, his, his prophet, they just give us such a special glimpse, I think, into how God deals with his children when they're confused. I mean, we've seen throughout the Old Testament that disobedience ought to result in instant judgment, and, and that happened at times. But Elijah makes his complaint, and God says, like a, like a kind father, come over here for a second. Let me, let me show you something. Except, unlike the gentle word of a father, or advice or caution that he might, an earthly father might give, God's moment with Elijah is, uh, is intense. <laughs> it's controlled, but it's intense. So, continuing verse 11 to 12. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. For the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. For the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. For the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Following God's invitation, Elijah doesn't even get a chance to step out of the cave, it seems, before the presence of God passes by, causing three dynamic majestic and very likely terrifying events, particularly when you're holed up in a cave on the side of a mountain. I'm not sure what it's like being in an earthquake in a cave. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 29 that we read earlier, this, this kind of manifestation of, is what one can expect when the voice of the Lord goes out. This, after all, is the voice that created the universe at the beginning of creation, as we see in Genesis 1 verse 3. This, this sort of appearance of God in a, to, to humans in a tangible, visible, or observable way is, is known as a theophany. It's not a call to worship the God of fire or the God of wind, as some cultures over the millennia have. And in fact, we see Israel doing just that, don't we? They were prone to worshipping Baal, the God of the weather. After all, I mean, this scripture itself tells us that God was not in the natural phenomena. His presence was causing them. God was in control of them, but it wasn't God in that sense. Now, the last bit translators seem to have struggled with, I don't read Hebrew, so I can't really give you my own personal take on how it, how it um, tr is translated. But it seems that, that when the cacophony of events stopped after theophany, there was a sound of a low whisper. It seems it was a hush after the, the loud noise. You know when there's that big boom and then it's... That's what I think has happened. And Elijah takes it as his cue to come out to stand before the Lord. Verse 13. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Stop there. Elijah had some serious fortitude, hey? <laughs> I mean, he'd, he'd, he'd had his moments, obviously, we've just seen them, but every, as every human, fallen human does, but Elijah was literally ready to face his maker. 
Like, you know, people usually explain that to be when you're dying. This is, this is, he was going out to stand on the mountain to face God. Now, no doubt remembering the command to Moses in similar circumstances. I mean, maybe he was even in the same cave. Who knows? But God said, you can't look on the face of, you can't look on my face. You can't look at the face of God without dying. And he only let him look at the back of his glory at Exodus 33, 22, if you want to have a look. So Elijah wraps his face in his cloak and stands at the entrance of the cave, waiting. Then, in the quiet after the storm, standing as directed, perhaps smoke even wafting around after the last fire, Elijah hears the audible voice of the Lord. God's word, we've seen, has come to Elijah before, but the text makes clear that this is a different thing. This was now the clear, audible voice. Yahweh himself is speaking to Elijah, as he had done to Moses on the same mountain. However, Elijah's experience of God's voice was the opposite of Moses, wasn't it? When God spoke to Moses, it was out of the thunder. Exodus 19, 19. Or from the fire and the cloud in Deuteronomy 4, 12 or 5, 22. But to Elijah, it's from the sound of silence. God showing to Elijah that his assumption that, it was, that God's word would only work in big, flashy, miraculous displays was wrong. God could call and save and would call and save his people through the quiet too. And so God asks Elijah the same question again. Now audibly, what are you doing here, Elijah? Imagine what that, I, don't, I can't even imagine what that felt like or, or saw, seemed like when God is speaking directly to you and you're standing on a mountain. The question was asked before and Elijah had kind of dodged it, preferring to put the issue back on God. God, I need you to do something here. Remember, this is your covenant. Are you going to respond to this rebellious people? But now God has revealed himself in such a powerful way and then posed the same question to Elijah a second time. What's Elijah going to do? Well, it seems despite all of these events, Elijah gives the exact same answer as before. He said in verse 14, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Elijah still wanted answers. God, I've done everything you've asked of me. I've been here as your word has achieved great signs before the people. But nothing seems to have changed their hearts. The people, your people, and more particularly your king and queen, or at least your king, are still rebellious against you. And now they want to kill me. Me. The comment almost seems a bit ridiculous after the events on the mountain, but, but the ever-patient Yahweh does not chastise his exhausted, strung-out servant standing before him in this moment. Now, God allows the complaint to be made, but he also doesn't really answer Elijah's complaint directly either. At least not, you know, with the, here's, 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 the, here's the explanation. Rather, God's answer to Elijah is essentially... Trust me. 
trust me. God had shown again to Elijah that he could control even the forces of nature. Throughout Moses' time, that had been demonstrated too. But where Elijah seeks action, God simply speaks out of the still quietness and says, Why are you here? Why are you not where I have sent you? Do you think I can't do this? Look at just what my presence does to this mountain. Elijah, trust me. You've relied on me before, and I've proven to be reliable. Rely on me still. Elijah was looking to God's mighty acts to shift the hearts of God's people. And while there was a short response, perhaps much like the the seed in shallow soil in Matthew 13, it did not change the heart of Jezebel or Ahab and did not look like affecting the hearts long-term of his people. And this caused Elijah grief, rightly. And many today still, still look for great signs as though they're needed in order for people to see God as God. In Jesus' day, when people demanded a sign for such purposes, he, he simply pointed back to the time of the prophets in Luke 16, 19 to 21, and Matthew 16, 4, a couple of examples. He, just, he, he wouldn't just do miracles when they wanted him to just show up. They were for a purpose. And when they wanted to see signs, he said, I've, Yahweh, I've, I've shown you signs. Look back there. But as we've now seen, up to 1 Kings, the signs were meant to evoke faith in God's word to show people that they could believe the one who spoke God's word. But God himself would affect the heart change through the work of his spirit in the quiet of their hearts as the word of God was brought to bear on their lives. As people lived their lives anticipating the restoration of God's kingdom, They were called to believe that God would achieve it and to trust him. God had promised to raise up a new prophet from among his people. Remember, we looked at Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. I've just got a little snippet there, verse 15. A better prophet than Moses would come. A better prophet than Elijah would come. A prophet whose words would have to be obeyed, unlike Elijah's as he was discovering. And many years later, that better prophet would come in the man, Jesus Christ. And he too would have a moment on a mountain where God would reveal himself. But this time, this time God would reveal himself in and through the prophet, demonstrating that Jesus himself was God. In Matthew 17, and in Mark and Luke 2, both chapter 9, Jesus took with him his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. And they went up onto a high mountain. And on that mountain, Jesus was transfigured before them. His appearance was transformed. And his face shone like the sun. His clothes as white as light. Luke records it as his clothes being brighter than any bleacher could get them, (laughs) as an explanation. Just as Moses and Elijah had been given an opportunity to obtain a glimpse of God's glory, so too did these three disciples. And they would, as Elijah and Moses, tell others about him in due course. 
But in that moment, as Jesus stood there, radiant with God's glory, there also appeared two others, Moses and Elijah. In their glorified form, as they spoke with Jesus, and Luke records that they were speaking of Jesus' departure, his exodus, his, his death, the purpose he had come for. As Elijah had, up to this point, Jesus had been demonstrating God's power through signs and wonders, speaking authoritatively God's word as people were raised from the dead, walking on water, healing the sick, making food. And just prior to these events, in Matthew 16, Peter, on behalf of the disciples, had declared that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was the Messiah, the long-awaited one. God had revealed that to Peter, to the disciples. Jesus confirms that for him. But then Jesus went on to teach that following the Messiah required one to take up their cross and to follow him, to lose his or her life in order to gain it. An odd thing to be sure. And so on the mountain, Peter, always ready also to jump to assumptions as we've seen in his life, recognizes in that moment that Elijah, he was supposed to come before the day of the Lord, before God's kingdom would be, a, would be restored. It was prophesied in, in Malachi 4 verse 5. So Peter says, great, let's make this thing official. Let's set up some tents, one for each of you guys, and uh, let's just have the kingdom come now. Real good. Forget about that suffering and taking up our cross. Let's, let's bring the kingdom now. But as Peter was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice spoke from the cloud. Sound familiar? Something we read a bit earlier? And the voice said in Matthew 17, 5 to 8, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The the verses go on and say, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified, as you can expect. Thus, you know, how brave Elijah must have been. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. As Elijah and Moses before them, God did not leave the disciples in the dark about who he was. In confirmation of his revealed word in their hearts, of his identity, God dramatically confirmed his presence and power visibly and audibly, and he says to them, listen. And he doesn't leave us in the dark either today. He's maintained for us his authenticated word. The Holy Scriptures recorded by his spokespeople over the history of the Bible. People who, like Elijah, spoke God's word authoritatively recorded Jesus' words for us. And today God continues to prompt his people in the silence of our hearts, telling us there is more to life, revealing himself to us, and calling us to himself through his son, Jesus, as God's word is illuminated for us through his spirit. Elijah and Moses point us to him. God continues to say to us today, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Will you? as we turn back to 1 Kings, having spoken to Elijah from the stillness, asking, why are you here? God then gives Elijah some further direction to get back on the task, task, to trust that God, the Almighty Lord, had everything in hand. 
God says to Elijah, in effect, the show must go on. I'm not done yet. I have more work for you to do. And so my third and final point is just that. The show must go on. In verse 15, God says to Elijah, in response, go, return. Amazingly, there's, there's no assurance given to Elijah that his life will not be taken. God doesn't say, look, don't worry, I've got you covered, you're not going to die, I'm going to look after you. He doesn't say that. He says, go. There's no assurance that Elijah's life would not be taken. There's no assurance that he would not continue to suffer for God as he was sent back into the fray, to continue to call God's people back to him. God didn't even explain why in that moment Jezebel's heart had remained hard. Instead, God showed him that he was still God through the theophany and sent him on his way. And in verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meolah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. I mean, it seems a bit of an odd way to respond, I suppose, in one respect, to Elijah's complaint. A task that would now see him walk all the way back the way he had come. So this one was our picture last time we looked at it, when he went from Jezreel and went out to the tree, and then I didn't get the rest of it. But if you look, he goes all the way, well, Mount Horeb's kind of disputed. But if we believe that this is where Mount Horeb was, that's there, there. He went all the way down there in the 40 days. Now God's saying... Head back to Damascus, which is all the way up here, <laughs> beyond that map. So he's got a bit of walking to do. <laughs> that's, that's God's response. Head off to Damascus, anoint a new king, and anoint a new king of Israel, and anoint a new prophet. But the purpose of these appointments is made clear in the following verses. In verse 17, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Wow. God might not have explained to Elijah why he had allowed the circumstances to get as bad as they did, why his life had been threatened, why things did not appear to be changing, but by this next task, he did show his prophet that he had not forgotten his covenant. As we read on through 1 Kings, we will see the story unfold as Elijah and by way of his successor who comes on the scene next, Elisha, how they go about this task that's been given. And we see once more the consequences that fall to Israel for failing to live obediently to God and to follow him as the one true God. The rebellion appropriately would not go unpunished. Hazael of Syria would bring God's judgment on the people. And you can find that in 2 Kings 8 to 12, which we'll get to as we go. And Jehu would bring judgment or punishment on the house of Ahab and the royal family, particularly Jezebel, in 2 Kings 9 and 10. And Elisha, well, Elisha would continue to call out and be a witness against the apostasy of Israel as the prophets before him and after him had done, declaring God's judgment on a wayward people. But there was hope in this message too. Hope for God's people generally, as God continues his conversation with Elijah and wraps up with these words in verse 18. Yet, 
I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah's complaint had contained a somewhat vain declaration that he was the only one left. He was the only guy doing this. I'm the only, I'm the only one here, God. And you know, I think that's a risk that we can have sometimes too, isn't it? We can, from time to time, we can be tempted to improperly compare our way of life or ministry with others, not use God's word to describe it, but just go, oh, well, I've got this and they don't have that. and I'm, I'm the only one, really. And, and that just causes struggle, as it does for Elijah. But as the consequences of rebellion were assured, so God assures Elijah that his promises to create and to keep a people for himself would also remain. And hundreds of years later, the Apostle Paul would refer to this same event again, assuring God's people then in Rome that those promises would still continue further. And they still continue today. That's Romans 11.4 if you're looking for it. Despite what Elijah had thought, there were still 7,000 people in Israel who had not turned from worship to the one true God to bow down to Baal. Elijah is thus sent back to continue to proclaim God's word to God's people, to tell them that God was the faithful God. He was and would continue to be true to his word, to call wayward people back to him, into relationship with him. Elijah's safety is not assured. His life is not assured, at least on earth. But God's power and faithfulness is. And isn't that how Jesus calls his people to continue to serve him today? Actually, the kids, kids, they were in praise factory the last few weeks and they've been learning all about the question, what did Jesus come to do? And I wonder if any of them are listening. I know someone's listening. I can see the half cog turning that she's ignoring me. What did Jesus come to do? Any of you kids want to tell us? What did Jesus come to do? Come on. When do you know it? They have to sing it. If they, unless they sing it, they don't know it. <laughs> Jesus came to bring us to God is the, is the answer to that question. What did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to bring us to God. And in bringing us to God, well, Jesus told his followers that it would require sacrifice. To follow him would be to give up their own life. In other words, to give up life that is lived for how we think the story should end. How we think our best life looks like. Or what we think our best life looks like. And instead, to live for God and his kingdom. Jesus said, a call to be a part of God's kingdom was a call to take up your cross and follow him. To follow the way of the king, to follow the God-made man who died for his people, Well, to follow him, your safety on earth is not assured. Our life on earth is not assured, as Elijah's wasn't. But God's power and faithfulness is. Matthew, in chapter 16, it says, For what will it profit a man, this is Jesus speaking, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Answer, nothing. Why? Because the Son of Man is going to come again with his angels in the glory of his Father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That's Jesus' words. 
Elijah was looking for the immediate restoration of God's kingdom. The disciples were looking for the immediate restoration of God's kingdom too. But Jesus himself said that time was still to come. And that time will come. The Bible says it will be a time of great celebration for those who are accepted, who have accepted Jesus as Lord. As he takes his people to be with him forever, the assumption's gone. The pain and the sadness gone. But as foreshadowed in the time of Elijah and as explained by Jesus himself, it will also be a time of terrible judgment for those who have not accepted him as Lord. And I end with this because, well, the text ends with this. <laughs> as Christians, we look forward to that time, being called to pursue God and his purposes being confident that Christ will return to his people as their saving king. But if you're listening to this message and you are not a Christian, I can provide you no assurance on that day apart from him. But I would pray that God's word would be tugging at your heart even now, revealing God to you, calling you to himself through his word, calling you to lay aside your rejection of him, your life lived for yourself and to turn for him. I pray that you would accept his son's death on the cross and his resurrection to new life, eternal life, that is made available for you freely, without charge. And I tell you, I ask you to talk to someone about it. Talk to one of us about it. Well, as we close, as God asked Elijah on Mount Horeb, so I ask you, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? in your moment, now, in your life? Are you trying to operate with half the facts? Are you focusing on the circumstances as you see them in the moment? Are you jumping on assumptions and expecting God to do what you think he should do? Or are you allowing yourself to be assured of God's ability to achieve his purposes when your circumstances don't appear right? Have you taken off the blinkers, seeing God for who he really is? God reveals himself in his word. Let's live with our eyes wide open, with the veil lifted. Let's go to God. Go to God's word regularly, living obediently to his way, regardless of our circumstances. Don't let the eyes of our heart become focused on anything other than him. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we are so thankful for your patience. We are so thankful that you've made a way for us to be your people. We recognize our waywardness. We recognize that we, like Elijah, second guess you, think at times that our plans, our ways are somehow better than yours. But God, we know deep down in our hearts that you have the better way. You have the better plan. Would you continue to draw us, our attention to your plan? Would you continue to draw our attention to you, the one who saves, the one who will save, the one who will bring us to glory to be with you forever? What an amazing thing to look forward to, God. Help us to live for you and to your glory 
while we await your return. In Jesus' name, amen.